0: This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing.
1: Hey, I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. Welcome to Graphic Novel TK. Today we're talking about book offers. It's an exciting stage of the publication process. But what exactly is involved in negotiating a book offer? Uh, we have Katie Lane here today to talk to us about that whole process. Katie, can you tell us a little about how you got into publishing and how you got from there to your job today? I know your job isn't exactly publishing, but if you want to kind of extend that to the entirety of your job, that would be great. Publishing adjacent. Um,
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to get to talk about this stuff. So I'm a lawyer, which is a little bit different from most of the folks, I imagine, uh, you've been talking to and will talk to. And I actually, when I went to law school, I knew I wanted to work with artists and freelancers because I had had some experiences where I had seen people get really bad advice uh, or not, not the right advice for them uh, when I was younger and involved in, in theater. So I went to law school. That's what I wanted to do. Got out of law school. But it wasn't like there were lots of jobs hanging out of people saying, hey, go work with artists. Help Help them. So I did a couple other things for a really long time, learned contracts, learned negotiation, and then started using what I had learned and the, you know, the money that my day job was paying me to focus advice, primarily in comics, but freelancers in general, creative folks who are working for themselves. And I learned the publishing industry, I, I guess the same way a lot of artists learn it, which was... I started doing things. You know, I started um, helping people with contracts. I started reading up on how the industry was working, what was interesting. I would talk to other attorneys who were uh, helping creators in comics and helping authors. I just, I, I educated myself and I also, you know, learned by doing the thing. Contracts are a little bit like writing in that you're going to have the basics. And once you know those basics, you can do a lot with them. But the particulars, the details are what makes each industry different. And those details can have a huge impact on the negotiation and how far you're able to get and the kind of deals you're able to structure. So I wanted to make sure before I was representing anybody that I... I understood enough of the details and what was important in a book offer negotiation to be helpful rather than potentially um, hurtful isn't maybe not the right word, but I've there. I've talked to detrimental. uh, Yeah, like, and I get it, right? Like, uh, if you don't have an agent. Because agents are usually there to help a creator with a book offer or negotiation. But if you don't have an agent, it can be really intimidating to find a lawyer. And so a lot of people do something that I think is perfectly natural, which is, you know, ask friends and family who are attorneys to help them. That just is... Occasionally, though, somebody who who writes wills for a living or is used to doing real estate law isn't going to uh, get how um, special the publishing industry can be when it comes to terms. And that can sometimes make things go longer. That was a very long, long answer to your question.
0: No, it's funny. While you were talking, I was actually just writing on my sheet specifically to ask you about the ways in which people sometimes are coming to you having been like, well, I showed my mom's friend who does divorce (laughs) law and she was really worried about this clause and you're like, okay, that clause is like in literally every book contract. You should be way more worried about this other blinking neon sign on the paragraph after this one. Like, So is that something that you end up having at the beginnings of your conversations with people a lot? or? Yeah, no, that's totally a conversation I have had. Uh, Are there particular things that people tend to either get really alarmed about that aren't actually a big deal or completely not think about that end up being Jesus Christ. I'm really glad you didn't sign this contract.
1: Yes. <laughs> and then that's that's part of why I have a job. Um so wait, before we get into that, can you actually just talk a little about like what your job is? Like do you oh, yeah. do like full-time like publishing adjacent contract law now and like how how does that play out on a day-to-day basis? Totally. So I don't do publishing full-time,
2: but I do, I run my own practice, so I am self-employed as well, and I work with um, comics creators, authors, designers, game designers, composers. I I work with a lot of different creative people, and I help them with their contracts, and primarily I'm helping them with contracts that are going to impact their intellectual property, which That is a publishing agreement, but it's also a license agreement. It's also an agreement where two creators are going to make something together and they want to be really clear about who's going to own what in the end and what each of them is going to be able to do or not do with whatever they've created. So my day to day is different. Every day. And that's one of the things I like about it is that because my basic job is helping people with contracts and helping make sure that they understand the law that impacts the work that they want to do. But the variation within that realm uh, can be really fun and exciting. And I would say most of or I would say a majority of my clients uh, are from comics. So that is what I deal with quite frequently. But um, comics and I would say design make up the majority of my practice. And those are two very different, um, very different industries that are going to have their, their own quirks. And those quirks don't necessarily translate from contract to contract. So my day to day gets to be really fun, I think. Uh, but that's because I have a touch of ADD. And so <laughs> doing
1: the same thing over and over again is never going to uh, make me a happy Katie. So, do you like. Spend nine to five every day writing contracts, or is it a lot of like emailing people and finding new clients and talking on the phone and I don't know, buying new office supplies and like all of
2: that. I do love to buy a new office supply. Uh, A new pin is a magical and wonderful thing. I agree. (laughs) I That's okay. That's a good question. No, I don't spend most of my day writing or reading contracts. Um, There's a lot of emailing and a lot of communication. I also write uh, articles and columns for different um, creative publications um, that are similar to what I do do for my blog. Um, I'm also trying to figure out a way that I can share more information with people who can't afford a lawyer, but do it in a way that they find helpful. So I spend I spend some time trying to figure out how to put together an educational tool um, that could be useful for people. So the other thing is that reviewing or writing a contract takes a lot of brain energy. So doing one or two relatively short Reviews in a day is gonna pretty much wipe me out. There used to be a time where I would review four or five contracts a day, and I would still be exhausted. But I could do I could do a lot more. And these days, with running my own business, I find that I just one or two contracts a day is pretty is pretty good.
1: Okay, so we specifically want to talk about book offers on this episode, um, and something that people I think get really anxious about when they think about book offers are that there's a contract involved. Is that something that people should be anxious about? Like, how how worried should they be when someone is like, here is a book deal, now you're going to have to negotiate a contract? I always have a, have a hard time
2: identifying how anxious somebody else should be. But <laughs> I look at contracts this way. It's like, saying, all right, we're going to do a thing together, and we want to make sure that we have the tools that we need to be able to do them. So in this document, we are spelling out all of those tools uh, as well as we can at this point in time, because we can't see everything into the future, so we can't get as detailed as maybe we would like to be. But we're going to try to make sure that this document describes all of the tools that we will need to get to the book being published, um, and explains our relationship be- and how we're going to work together. Um, so from that point of view, a contract really isn't that scary. It's like having a list of, um, it's, it's having a, a an inventory list of the tools that you're going to use. It just so happens that they are tools related to how, you know, timing of turning things in and how people are going to evaluate um, work and what responsibilities each each party is going to have. I understand why people get intimidated by contracts, because a lot of contracts are written really poorly. And so
1: they're difficult to read and difficult to understand. People don't interact with them very frequently. Also, it's not like an everyday thing, like you're drawing every day, you're writing every day, and you're like, I have confidence in my writing and drawing skills. Exactly. It is a
2: totally different thing. That's like, so I read a contract once a day, but if you asked me to draw once a day, I would fall apart. (laughs) I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't know what to do. I would worry about it too much. I would probably worry about the things that somebody who does um, draw would never worry about. Uh, I always tell um, Dylan, my wife, that the thing that I find so interesting about watching somebody draw is that they start in a totally different place then somebody who doesn't draw on a regular basis, they start with the shapes. And when I try to draw something, I'm not paying attention to the shapes. I'm paying attention to the outline. And um, that's a very good uh, corollary to contracts, whereas I don't always start at the very beginning, depending on what the contract is. I will sometimes jump into the middle of it. Um, Sometimes I'll read it backwards, uh, last page to front page. It really depends on the deal and what my client has told me they're worried about that I'm going to pay attention to. Because for me, the contract is not a wall of words. It is, um, it's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure story, right? Where I know that depending on what I find... There may be other paragraphs and other things explained later on. So I am paying attention to the clues that I'm seeing and trying to make sure that the um, the terms that I expect to find are there later on and that they are worded in the way that I expect to find them. So yeah, it's it's perfectly reasonable to be intimidated by a contract if you don't read them on a regular basis. Um, that said, it's possible to learn how to read a contract. It, Absolutely, 100% is possible to learn how to recognize it well enough that you feel confident and that you know when you need help. And I think that's the most important thing in all of the adulting we do, right, is figuring out that point in time where, oh, this is a little bit beyond what I can do on my own. I need to find somebody to help me. So that actually leads into like the next question I
0: had, which is, when in their process are people usually coming to you? Like, when a client is coming to talk to you, like, where are they at at that point most of the time? Or does it vary a lot?
1: Yes. And do you have advice about where it is good to involve people, right? Because I think that for a lot of publishers, the first stage would be something like a deal memo, right? Like Mm -hmm. something where it's like, we would like to buy this book. We would like to give you this much money. We would like to have these rights. Like this is when we would like the book to be due kind of just like outlining all of that. Like, is that the point where they should be like, let me just call Katie (laughs) or uh, should they be calling you when they get the actual, like, this is a 40 page long contract document?
2: This question makes me so happy, you guys. This is such a good question. People call me at all different times. And when I'm talking with people who are dealing with traditional publishing, so they're publishing a graphic novel, right? We're not calling it a comic any longer because it's, um, you know, over 60 pages. So... um, When I'm talking to somebody who is getting something published through the more traditional model, they will usually contact me once they have the contract in hand, um, because they've pitched the book, um, they've gotten that deal memo, and they're just waiting for that contract because they think, contract, lawyer. Whereas... (laughs) Here to for no, um, uh, uh-huh. what I would love is if somebody contacted me once they heard that they were going to get a deal memo because what a lot of people don't understand is that that memo is going to dictate what terms show up in the contract, um, and so if there's anything in the deal memo that they're feeling a little uncomfortable about or that they don't understand or that could be made better that's the other thing i think a lot of creators don't understand that you can say that does not work that is not going to be good for getting this published and and doing a good job in marketing the book for me because of my availability or because of my process whatever it is so at the deal memo stage it's actually a, it's it's a lot easier to make changes and to negotiate changes and it makes the contract negotiation easier Uh, I just did that recently with somebody who was doing it's a little bit different it's um, an option agreement for um, for creating a television show but because they brought me in at the deal memo stage reviewing the contract was really straightforward because it was essentially making sure that the contract had the terms that we had already negotiated when I'm talking to somebody who's who's um, got a contract from an independent comics publisher. Um, so like Oni, Dark Horse, Image, the, those types of folks. I'm usually getting the contract, you know, after they've gotten it and after they've had several conversations. Independent publishing doesn't do deal memos as often as traditional publishing does. So there's not that easily identifiable point in time of, hey, paper is changing hands or electronic paper is changing hands. Maybe we should get somebody else's eyes in here. But that said what is helpful for me and just about any lawyer that your listeners would talk to is understanding what my client wants. So I will ask them a series of questions of, you know, why are you doing this project? Uh, How is it important to you? Where does it fit in to your overall career goals? Um, Do you have any other projects that you're working on that you want to keep working on while you're, you're making this book? All sorts of things that are not necessarily the questions I think creators would expect me to ask, because understanding how this fits into your life is going to give me a better picture as to how to understand the terms and how they're going to affect you than just knowing, are you okay with this royalty? Because the royalties are going to be you know they're gonna they're gonna shift by a couple percentage points, and there are different things that we can kind of do to to make money work differently. But there's a pretty traditional structure to how they're gonna work. That's not to say that you know you can't have something um, wildly different depending on the project, but it's pretty structured. Whereas. Making sure that the contract isn't getting in the way of other goals that you might have, or um, other work, or uh, just how you want this book to be made is um, is definitely something that you can you can play with. Those are a bit more malleable.
1: Okay, so let's talk about these these red and green flashing lights that um, Allie brought up earlier. Yeah. So. If we could just like walk through the process, possibly the first thing that people will get is a deal memo. What should they expect to be in that deal memo? And what are the kind of like flashing lights, like go ahead, don't go ahead that you see when you get those?
2: So I would, with a deal memo, what you are looking at is, um, is this, the basic structure that I want for this arrangement here. Because that's what the deal memo is. It's, it's, it's drawing out the structure of the contract and everything else is going to be laid on those terms. So if those terms are wrong or not quite right, it is going to impact the contract and it's going to impact your ability to effectively negotiate that contract. So I look for the things that are that my client has helped me understand are important to them based on the questions that they've asked. But I will look for things like what is the timeline? Um, Some publishers totally understand how comics are made. Others do not. um, Despite the fact that they have made, you know, they've published a number of contracts. So I look at the, um, the schedule and whether or not that makes sense. One of the things that a lot of folks don't understand is uh, when you are publishing, when you are creating a book, um, if you're using somebody else's material in your book in some way, shape, or form, like let's say you're quoting a poem somewhere in the book, um, the publisher is going to expect you to secure the rights to, those, to, to what it is that you're using. So I will talk to people about, um, is this something that they've already anticipated? Uh, have they talked to their editor about how they would want to get that working? Because um, the deal memo is going to, talk about big picture issues like scheduling, um, the amount of money that's going to be involved, so the advance and potentially what some of the royalties are, depending on how detailed the contract gets. And I want to make sure that if there's an advance and if there are things like licenses or things like they're going to be expected to hire somebody, to help them with the book, as opposed to the publisher is hiring somebody, like, say, a colorist to help with the book. Um, I want to make sure that the money makes sense for them and that they are not agreeing to uh, basically going into debt in order to get the book published. So the terms in a deal memo that I see as red or green are really going to depend on the, the particular client. When you get to the contract, it's a little bit easier to say, like, I always look for um, whether or not the publisher is taking rights to their next book. You know, they, they get a first pass at the next book, which is totally normal. But how that next book is defined can differ from publisher to publisher. And there's a really big difference between I'll give you first dibs on my next children's picture book about this particular topic versus I will give you first dibs uh, to publish my next book full stop. So making sure those things are right. The other thing that can come up in publishing quite frequently is a promise that this will be your next published work. And because comics take such a long time to come together, and because the timelines can, can gel at different points in time, that might not be the case, even though the creator is working full-time priority on the book that the contract is about. So, Oh, yeah, that's an awful clause to have in a comic.
0: I mean, yeah. the, the three books that I was working on at the same time at one point are coming out in almost the opposite order yep. in some ways that I signed contracts for them. Like, it's just completely bizarre how these things work out sometimes. Like, I, I've definitely seen clauses like that in contracts sometimes. And it's like, have you ever literally... worked in graphic novels at all. Especially when there's a collaborator, it's like a writer and an artist. Like, I I was the writer on a book. It's like, what if the artist... Takes five years to draw this comic. Yeah, what if the artist decides they want to move to Paris for six years and not work on this book? Like... Yeah. Sometimes things happen Well, and, in the and,
1: meantime.
2: You can't publish anything. It's, and that's not helpful for anybody, right? Like, But that's why it can be so important to work with somebody who understands how comics are made. So like, if you are working with your mom's friend who is a divorce attorney and asking her to look over the agreement, one of the things that you have to do is sit down and explain to her how a comic is made. Explain to her how you create a comic, because she's not going to be able to read the contract and give you helpful advice without understanding that thing. The other thing that I think a lot of creators misunderstand when they're reading a contract is, well, this is coming from the publisher, so the publisher must understand how the comic is made. This is a template contract that is coming from the publisher. It may have been modified to a certain degree depending on the imprint, but it is not a contract that was built for comics, most likely. It is a contract that was built for publishing books. And it is not in the publisher's best interest to spend a lot of time and energy, you know, modifying all of the different terms that could impact you as a comics creator versus as a prose author versus a project where, you know, there are two creators involved versus one. The publisher isn't going to, Take the time to make that template con- contract perfect for you before they send it out. It is easier if they plug in the details that you've already agreed to in the deal memo, send out the contract to you, and then have you mark up the contract and send it back. The other thing is, uh, there's so many other things. The other, the other thing is that oftentimes you're not negotiating that contract with the editor. Like you've had all of these great conversations with the editor. You may have come to certain understandings. Oftentimes the negotiation is with a contract manager or somebody who is responsible for a negotiating. negotiating contracts for the publisher. And that person has, you know, a download from the editor about um, details for this particular project, but they don't necessarily have a complete understanding of, again, how comics are made, uh, the differences that can arise when we've got two creators instead of one, um, when a comic is based off of something that is solidly in the public domain, like a fairy tale, um, how that works one of the things I want people to understand is if you read a contract and it does not seem to make sense for how comics are made, trust that gut instinct. (laughs) Because chances are it wasn't written for your particular project. It was written to apply to lots of different projects. And the goal now in the negotiation is to tailor it to better fit the work that you're going to be doing. And is this one of the reasons why it's so important to try to do
0: as much upfront in the deal memo as possible? Because that's a conversation that's probably happening with your editor who is then passing all the stuff on to the contract department. Like you want to try to get this stuff sorted out. With the people who understand comics first before it gets handed off to this poor, overworked <laughs> p- person in the contracts department. Is that is that usually how it works? Or
2: That is part of the reason you want to have those, con- those conversations, those really clear conversations up front. But honestly, you're going to have that same conversation several points in time over the course of negotiating the contract. Contract negotiation is a elaborate game of telephone, and um that's part of the reason that they take such a long time, but it's also part of the reason that you need to be sure that you are consistent in your message and that you have to be comfortable just repeating the same things over and over again. Sometimes you'll get somebody coming back and saying, "No, we absolutely cannot do that," and that's, you know. That's something that you've got to factor into how you take the next step. But just because you've said it once, don't assume that everybody on the other side who is involved in that contract negotiation heard your message. Um, It's one of the reasons why when I negotiate contracts uh, and I can't have a phone conversation with whomever I'm working with for whatever reason, there are some publishers that have policies against it. I will get incredibly detailed in the comments that I leave in my contracts when I'm revising them, so that I am. Exp- it's easy for several people to see. The reason that I am asking for this change is X, Y, and Z. You know, if you have an alternative that could meet these requirements, please let me know, because that way. You know, the contract manager is going to see it, potentially the editor is going to see it. If they have to go to legal, the legal department sees that somebody is asking for this for a particular reason and not just because. Yeah, contract negotiations are an elaborate game of telephone and they're not everybody's cup of tea. I really like them, but I've been doing them for years.
1: So talking more about contracts, if people are like, "Okay, oh, hey, I'm going to get my first contract, it's going to be so exciting what should they expect it to look like? Like, it's not going to be the same as a deal memo. It's not going to be like, you know, here's like 10 bullet points. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like many pages long. It's going to be many, many pages long.
2: And it's probably going to be in a be- in like Times New Roman. Uh, and it's probably going to be a pretty tiny point face. So contracts, there there are two basic ways of... We can construct a contract in lots of different ways, but there are two traditional ways of doing it. And in one of them, uh, at the very beginning of the contract, it says, okay, here are the two parties that are involved, and the parties are you and the publisher, and this is the reason why they're working together. And then it will go into a long list of definitions, and those definitions are going to apply to the document. The other way of doing it is, you know, at the very beginning, it says these are the parties, this is why they're working together, and then it will immediately jump into... um, The legal terms. And in that instance, definitions are um, in parentheses after the thing that they define.
1: So it will be like when we say author, Mm -hmm. we mean this person that we are going to define as the author here on it.
2: Exactly. And then you have to pay attention as you're reading the contract that the definition is consistent so we're when when we use that capitalized word, we're always referring to the same thing, um, and that's one of the reasons, honestly, why contract reading a contract can be confusing because if you don't remember capital A author means this or capital B book means that, um, which is really easy too. They're they're, they're long; it's easy to get kind of turned around. And they also have
1: standard meetings, which are not necessarily the meetings that are defined in the contract. Yeah, Because, you know, the contract might be like, the author will turn in the book, which means the black and white inked pages without any speech bubbles and no text. We will refer to that as the book from here on out. But a, a book is, you know, not that like it's something with a spine it's something with that people think of in a more finished state mm-hmm. yeah and
2: I also see a lot of contracts where they, they keep talking about the manuscript obsessively and I get that for prose right like that totally makes sense but for comics it it's like that could mean five different things I don't know Th- that's what I mean by like it needs to be defined in a way that makes sense for your process and if it isn't to either correct that definition or find a different way of describing it that's going to fit with how they like to structure their contracts
1: in the beginning there's definitions so like is there a typical next part is the next part like the top line like what what is due
2: no usually in the next part we're talking about the license that you are giving the publisher so because you own the copyright and what you've created or what you're going to create Um, you need to give the publisher permission to publish it. And so it will say how long the license is going to be. In traditional publishing, um, we're looking at the life of the copyright. So you are giving the publisher the exclusive right usually to publish this book in whatever languages, in whatever geographic locations for the life of the copyright, which means a copyright lasts as long as the author's life plus another 70 years. So it's a very long time. So usually we're looking into the bare bones basics of the license, and it'll often say like the license terms as defined in this agreement. Well, those terms are usually like two or three pages deep into the contract where you're talking about. You have the right to do a hardcover, a softcover, it's going to be in English, you can translate it into other languages, you can do the ebook, you can do the audiobook, you can license this for um, stationary products, you can license this for television, for plays. Like, there will be details about what permissions you are giving the publisher, usually a couple pages further into the contract. And depending on the publisher, it's going to be, you know, in a chart or in a structured list but um usually the very first thing ter- legal term in the contract is going to be the the p- permission that you are giving the publisher because that's the most important term for the publisher right is that they have permission um to to do this thing and then it will start to get into the details of what it is you're creating and how it's going to be due um you'll usually see if it's not talking about details of what you're creating and when in, when things are due it's going to jump into royalties and what the what the advance is and what the percentages are you're you're going to be getting depending on the type of product that is sold I think one of the things that's important for people to understand about advances like that's going to be laid out in the deal memo as well there are a couple different myths that people have about advances one is that it is supposed to be your income while you are creating the book that is not going to happen. <laughs> Um, when you start getting an advance that is able to do that thing, you have been in publishing for quite some time. And honestly, chances are you are doing a prose book, not comics. So the advance is not meant to provide an income while you are creating the book. It is supposed to help. Uh, it is supposed to, you know, discourage you from having to take on lots of other jobs. But it is not going to be your sole source of income. The other thing is that the advance is figured out based off of calculations that the publisher has done as to how many books of yours they think they're going to be able to sell. They've done what is called a a profit and loss assessment. And based on that, they're saying, we feel it's possible that we're going to sell this amount based on this price. And so the advance that we feel we can give you without a significant risk is X.
1: So, if a book, for example, is going to cost ten dollars and you have a ten percent royalty, which is a dollar per book, and your the publisher is like, "We will give you ten thousand dollars for an advance, it seems like what they're thinking is that they will sell ten thousand copies of that book about
2: yeah. And they hope to sell more, right? We all we all hope yeah. to do better. But because that is the evaluation they're doing, it tends to be pretty conservative, right? Like they are making this assessment with lots of different books, and obviously all of the books don't work out. So um, their assessment can be conservative. That said, even though this is based on math, which I think sometimes people feel like, oh, well, it's based on a calculation, so I can't really push back on it. No, you can just understand that that is going to be one of the things that is influencing the decision that they make. Um, And so you're, you can't just come back with a different number for no reason. Um, I don't like doing that in general. I think that's more bartering than it is negotiating, but uh, you can come back and ask for a different advance. You just are going to need to provide some reasoning as to why you think that is um, appropriate.
1: Yeah, like if you're like, you said that I'm going to have to hire a colorist myself for this book, and that is going to cost X amount of dollars, and I will need that additional amount of money in my advance, not as like, you know, I can't make that work with the advance that you gave me. Yep. Yeah, that's a perfect example. I guess it's, it's helpful for people to
2: understand that one, that, that advance is not going to carry you through and um, pay for everything while you're making the book. But two, it's informed by a particular calculation. And so if you want a bigger advance or a different advance, you're going to need to be able to respond to that in some way, shape, or form.
0: Do you feel like part of your job is explaining how this calculation is done to authors and kind of working with them to be like, okay, so this is where, this is what they're thinking. And so let's think of a way to address this as opposed to just being like, that's not enough money. It's like, okay, well, let's talk about
2: why you think it isn't enough money. Yes. Yeah, no, that's absolutely, that is a huge part of my job. And what I'll tell my client says, "You know, I am not the bang on the table and yell lawyer. Uh, I'm not going to get on the phone and scream at somebody because I, I I don't like doing that, and I don't think it's particularly useful for you. Um, you're going to have to have a relationship with this person for a very long time, so let's start out the relationship positively by showing them that you pay attention to the things that are important to them. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're going to roll over and accept absolutely everything they tell you, but it." You are going to pay attention to what's important to them and try to help them be as successful as you are um, in the process. But yeah, I, I, I talk to a lot of authors who are surprised to learn that that's how an advance works and surprised to learn that, you know, like your marketing budget is not set in the contract and no publisher is going to commit to details about marketing at that point in time. Because you've not Especially like I guess No publisher is going to do that if you are a First time uh, Author or if you are relatively early In your career because they don't know What the book is going to look like They don't know When it's actually going to be turned in You know there's a lot of hope In the contract that it's going to be turned in at this particular Time and that you're going to be able to then Publish within this Season Um, But there's not a guarantee and so they're not gonna commit a dollar amount um super early in the process but you can get them to talk about marketing in the contract and that that is the support that they're going to provide and at minimum they're going to do these types of things with you there there there's so many things that like as you get deeper into the contract issues come up like marketing is one of them um If you're able to uh, get books from the publisher, there's a lot of detail as to whether or not you're able to sell those books. Usually with a traditional publisher, they don't want you selling those books at a convention, and that can be really uh, weird for somebody who's done comics for such a long time. You can arrange that differently, but it's going to be different. Um, The other thing that comes up later in the contract that is really important is reversion, which is, okay, let's say all of the great plans that we have for this book don't end up working out, how do you get your rights back? Because remember, you've given the publisher the right to publish this book exclusively, which means they are the only entity able to do that thing. Um, And you've given them permission to do that for the life of the copyright plus 70 years. So what happens if they don't market it well and it doesn't sell well? Or what happens if you know they were really excited about it at one point in time and then sort of aren't and they decide not to do another run but they still are holding the rights? How can you get those rights back? That's usually coming up way later in the contract and is kind of buried and is usually written for prose, not comics and is usually written for print not electronic books and by electronic I'm thinking audio and e-books so you want to make sure that those terms are properly structured so that if things aren't working out, you have the ability to get those rights back and, you know, either print it yourself, take it to a different publisher, um, whatever, whatever it is that you're going to want to be able to do with those things.
1: So you talked about definitions, you talked about due dates and materials, you talked about rights and reversion, um, and the possibility of having some marketing information written in. Are there more parts that people should expect to see in their contract?
2: There's going to be a lot of language about legal responsibility, and it's going to freak you out, um, because it's going to be about two pages, and it's going to say things like um, indemnification and... That you are um, on the hook uh, financially for certain things if they go wrong. That you're promising that you're going to do this forever and ever. Amen. There is a lot of language in there about you're promising that the book um, doesn't do certain things, so it's not going to defame somebody. It's not you're not misusing somebody else's writing, and that if the publisher gets sued, you're going to be responsible um, because you said hey, none of these things happen in the book. That is a totally normal part of contracts. It's in most contracts. It's always written in a way that feels super scary. But breaking it down, if you can feel like you have control over the promises that you're making, which are usually called warranties or representations. If you feel like those are written in a way where you can say, yes, I can control these things. I can promise these things and it's not going to be an issue. Then it's usually much easier to look at that indemnification promise, which is the promise to, um, be responsible if the publisher gets sued because one of your warranties is wrong or false. Um, if the promises are promises you feel comfortable with, then the indemnification is a lot easier because the indemnification is tied to something that you can control.
1: So it might be like, I didn't rip this book off from someone else and publish it in my my as my own work while it was really someone else's book. Right. And you're like, well, I'm pretty confident I, <laughs> I didn't do that. Exactly. You know, like I... I didn't like, you know, screenshot this webcomic and then trace it and then turn it into, you know, HarperCollins as my own work. Totally. Let's let's go with this clause. Exactly. Because if that's if that's the level of promise you're making, like I promise I did
2: not do this completely ridiculous thing, um, then it's a lot easier to stand behind that promise, which is really all indemnification is. Standing behind your promises. Um but if your promises are worded in a way that is squishy, um, like is not now and never will be the subject of litigation. Well, heck, I don't I mean, like I can promise you right now, nobody's suing me over this this comic, but I can't. I can't promise that somebody will never sue about the comic because I can't control somebody else and what they do.
1: Yeah, it might turn into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then you have 20,000 people being like, well, I was doing Hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Hamsters. And Panthers. Yeah. I think that I think that these guys stole my work. <laughs> I'm I'm very upset. And we'll see you immediately. For a
2: million dollars. Um yeah, no, you can't you can't control people and what they do. People are weird, man. They're just don't I, I always tell tell my clients, never make a promise that is about controlling somebody else. <laughs> cause cause you cannot. So backing up a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Obviously, one of the
0: things in a lot of contracts has to do with what you're making and when you're supposed to be turning it in, right? But, like anybody who's worked in comics, and it, we even, you even explicitly said this earlier, knows perfectly well that a lot of the time that date is a wish and a dream and has maybe not a huge amount of bearing on the actual schedule for that book, especially for comics, which can take years to make, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, but on the other hand, there's things in a contract like your publisher's right to exclusively publish this book and what your royalties are that are absolutely not something that can get messed. Like, if your editor is like, yeah, you know, I wasn't feeling it. I just decided I'm only <laughs> going to give you one. per. So, like, there's obviously things in a contract that are extremely, no, you can't fuck with this and things in a contract which are actually really squishy. And I think that that's. One of the reasons people get so freaked out about this, so like I'm actually just sort of curious what you have like what your thoughts are on on that when from somebody who's not a lawyer and also not, for instance, like you know at the publisher, how to kind of navigate the waters of like which things are in a contract and I'm signing this piece of paper, but I may or may not actually be held to mm-hmm. and which are the things that are like, no, you can't mess with this this is this is real business
2: for real, yes. and
1: what do you and what do you do if you are like I'm going to be six months late on my book, I think. Mm -hmm. Or I said that I would hire a colorist and I just don't have the money to do that. Right. So
2: I'm going to pull back the legal curtain on weird, weird writing that we do and tell you. This is the difference between shall and will. Shall creates an obligation in a contract. So whenever you see the publisher shall pay author a royalty of... That means that the publisher is obligated to do it, legally obligated. Whenever you see the verb will, um, author will, you know, turn the manuscript in by such and such a date. That is something that the parties anticipate is going to happen in the future. It is something that one of them or both of them will do at some point in time in the future. So that's one thing. Um, It turns out for lawyers, shall and will mean actually different things. That's crazy, Isn't
0: it? I didn't know that. I love this. Please go on. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: So then the other thing is uh, you look and see whether or not um, there's any sort of discretion within that particular term. So, for instance, a lot of times when you're talking about turning in the manuscript on time or turning in the book on time or however it is we're defining the thing as, you know, the comic, then you want to see what kind of discretion the publisher has because it might say that you shall turn in by such and such a date i would maybe fix that depending on that Uh, depending on the rest of the contract i might be like yeah okay so you'll turn it in but what i'm going to look for in the rest of that paragraph is what is the discretion that the publisher has is there a way like if you don't do it is the publisher immediately going to terminate the agreement or is that something that they can do? The other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to the editor about what happens when. Which is why, if you think you're going to be late, it is so, 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 so. so. Very important that you don't keep that information to yourself. That you tell other people. Particularly, if you've got an agent, that you tell your agent. And your editor. Your editor needs to know that not because, like... Is it frustrating when somebody can't do something on time? Sure. We've all been there. What's more frustrating is somebody says they're going to do something. And, you know, we're all guilty of this. But somebody says that they're going to do something, then they don't do it. And they don't tell you that it's not going to happen on the date that they promised it. That's usually where problems arise. Whereas if you say, hey... This didn't happen the way that we planned it, so it's not going to be ready here. But I think based on what I'm looking at, it would be ready, you know, three months from now. That's something that the editor can then manage internally, because there are all of these other people, all of these other departments that the editor is keeping in line and getting ready to go to get your book to print. So if you don't tell your editor, hey, <laughs> I'm going to be late, you're not just screwing up the editor's schedule, you're screwing up all of those other departments' schedules because they're assuming that your work is going to drop onto their plate at this point in time. So from a contract perspective, I'm looking to see, is, is there some sort of discretion? Can the editor have the ability to say, okay, we'll come up with a new date? Then I'm talking to the editor about what usually happens within that particular company. What is their policy? What do they like to know? How often has it actually happened that they've terminated an agreement for a delay? And what were those circumstances that led them to take that action? Because remember, the publisher is invested in you quite a lot. And it's not just the money that they've given you. It's it's time and resources and getting all those departments ready to go. So they don't necessarily want to terminate the agreement just because you're a week late. (laughs) That is not (laughs) beneficial to them. But there are circumstances where the problems caused by a late delivery outweigh the investment that they've made. And it's like, cut our losses, we're ready to go. But by understanding what the policy is internally, I have a better sense of what the contract actually means and how I can expect it to be enforced. So that's something that people don't always understand is I've got the contract, but in order to really understand how it's going to apply, I need to understand the policy that the company has, that the publisher has in enforcing this language. And this is one of the reasons to work with a
0: lawyer and an agent instead of just signing a piece of paper.
2: Yeah. it's it, And because these are not necessarily questions you, I think, as a creator, you would think of asking You know, oh, what's your policy about terminating the agreement? That can feel really scary. Like, (laughs) so are you going to take away this thing that I worked really hard for? Tell me how that (laughs) could happen. Yeah. So if I fuck up, <laughs> like, how bad is that? Really bad? Kind of bad? Yeah. So I, like, I get why you wouldn't want to ask that question, but it turns out it's a really important and helpful. It, it, it's a really important question. It, it There's helpful information. Okay. So your shell will thing
0: made me want to ask you the other weirdly technical question that I have about this, which I think that Do my it. own agent once explained to me, but I have forgotten. All right. So when you're looking at your contracts and these things are getting passed back and forth, you, the author will notice that you'll start getting like whole paragraphs or half pages of text that are like literally like X'd out on the page. Mm -hmm. And you might be thinking, why did they just, do they just want to like have this, the specter of this weird, I almost signed over my movie rights thing to you thing on this contract. So I have to look at it. Like, so like, why is it that things just get crossed out as opposed to getting deleted or rewritten
2: in a contract? It's up to the company and their policy and how they like to, to do it. Um, But oftentimes the reason why a company will do it that way is that they want to show that it was intentional, that that language was removed. Um, So they want to keep a really clear record of the fact that that was not part of this deal. And they may have that policy because a lot of people are involved in enforcing it. So the bigger the company is, the more helpful that policy can be for them, right? Because... Instead of somebody looking at the agreement and saying, wow, this doesn't have that paragraph that we have in all of our other agreements, Um, that must have been an oversight, I'm going to try to enforce that term. Or somebody who doesn't even look at the contract, but enforces it the same way that... um, they enforce all the other agreements. By capturing the fact that that stuff has been deleted on the document itself, it's just a little bit easier for lots of different people to enforce. That's my understanding. I don't know if your agent has a different understanding. No, that's um, so interesting, though. I like just deleting stuff. Like, if it's not there, it's not there. It's not part of the agreement. Like, but whatever.
0: Well, I like the idea that, that you have somebody who's literally just, they know what section that thing is going to be in, and they can flip to it and see if it's X'd out or not.
2: Oh, totally. So I... um. One of my jobs before I started my practice was I managed a contract department for the IT department of a company. So all the software, hardware, and professional service contracts that were related to uh, technology. And in the professional services agreement, it was a template that the company had. And the company did lots of different things, but they used the same template regardless of the contractor who was coming in and regardless of what that contractor was doing. And I knew that like on the... Let's see if I can remember exactly where it was. It was, like, on the fifth page, middle of the page. I think it was probably, like, paragraph 16 or something. Um, it talked about how you agreed to carry insurance for air flight. And so that you would carry insurance of a minimum amount as this professional contractor for all airplane uh, traveling or flying that you would do, perform as part of your duties. <laughs> for this company. And I would know how closely somebody read that contract if they asked me to remove it. I had full authority to remove it, but only if they asked. I could not send it out to them having already taken that out. So, like I, I just I knew how that contract was structured because I I have used it so many times that I just was like, all right, yeah, the airplane insurance thing, sure, whatever. The people that that are dealing with their company's contract on a regular basis, they know it intimately and they're going to work off of what they expect in certain circumstances. Um, not everybody does, but it's really easy to be like, yeah, our, our contract always has these terms. Um, so I'm going to. I'm going to work from the assumption that the contract has these terms.
1: So I feel like we've been talking mostly from the perspective of books that are kind of like original creator owned books. But if people are doing books that are work for hire, uh, are there other things that they should be looking at in contracts that are different than what someone would be looking at at something that's their personal project that they're retaining a lot of the rights for? Yeah, with with Work
2: for Hire, I'm looking at things like, is the rate a good rate? In Work for Hire, I expect you to be paid a little bit more. Um, and that might come through in your rate or it might come through in other things. But I expect you to be paid more because you, you're not going to be able to likely benefit from the book going forward, right? It's going to be you do the work, you get paid, it's done. Um, that said... A publisher can entice you to make this a priority for your work, or they can entice you to um, bring your best stuff, um, turn it around really quickly by offering you a small royalty going forward. Usually, that royalty is going to come from um, if there's a original creator. So, like, let's say you've been you're an illustrator who's been matched up with an author. Um, Chances are that that small percentage is going to come from the author's pool, not the publishers. But so I want to make sure that you're it's like on work for hire, you're getting paid appropriately. You're only making promises that are relevant to the work that you're doing. Oftentimes with work for hire, you are given a script or you are given material and you are told to draw or write based on that. So I don't want you making promises about the originality of the work, for instance, without... Um, recognizing the fact that you're being given information by somebody else right so in that case i i want you to make the promise that is the thing that you can control which is the work you will do um will be original based off of material provided to you by um the publisher or the author or whomever um the other thing is i mean a lot of it's the same stuff too. you know making sure that uh the schedule makes sense, making sure that you are going to be properly credited, making sure that if they, you know, if they're going to be using your image that you get to approve the image they're using. Then the other thing is, if they're going to expect you as a uh, work for hire to participate in the marketing, I want to make sure that, you know, they're going to be paying for that benefit. You're not going to be on the hook for getting to a convention or getting um, to a particular event on your own dime because you're not going to benefit again from those royalties. So while you want to be supportive and you want to be a team player, um, you also don't want to go in the hole so that somebody else can make money. So this is a different kind of working with other people. One of the things we've
0: talked about kind of on and off throughout this is how, you know, there's things where you're the sole creator and you're just, you're the one writing, drawing the book, and that's great. And there's a lot of things where you're collaborating with somebody else, either a cartoonist collaborating with a writer or vice versa, for instance. Mm -hmm. So in cases like that, uh, I mean, I know this, but people who are listening to this podcast might not. How does that work? Like, are the artists and and writer both signing the same contract and agreeing to all the same things? Or are there agents or lawyers negotiating
2: these separately? Like, how does that usually work? So when when you're brought on to a project as opposed to um, being one of the originators of the idea? Oh, it's... Or more just like when there's just more than one person. Okay. You know, like there's, an,
0: there's a writer for the book and there's an artist for the book and they're working together on the book, but they're also gotcha responsible for different things. Like, is there one big contract for everybody? Uh, are there different contracts? And how are the two lawyers and agents talking to each other?
2: Like, how does that all work? So I like it when there are separate contracts because then it it's easy to make it really clear. Like the writers doing this and the the illustrators doing this i like that because um it's just it's easier to differentiate and you can you can do it a lot of publishers want you to have the same contract because they want it all to be in one place in my experience um but when that happens i will reach out to the um agent or the lawyer for the other creator. And I'll talk to them about like, here's what I'm seeing in the agreement. Here are the things that I would like to change. Do you know, has your client talked to you about what their plans are for X, Y, and Z? So I'll work with the other creator's representative to make sure that we are going to the publisher um, as a sort of united in the revisions that we're requesting. Because if we don't do that, then (laughs) um, it's awful because, like, I'm sending in my revisions and the agent or the lawyer sending in their revisions and the contract manager is getting it and then communicating to us separately. And so you just, like, go round and round in circles. Um, So one of the nice things you can do if you are working on a collaborative team like that is let your agent or lawyer know, hey, um, my collaborator's agent and lawyer are these people and here is their email address. So oftentimes you'll see it end up being in one contract. Yeah. And a
1: problem that I have seen with that is that sometimes you'll, you'll hire a writer and artist, they'll be in the same contract mm-hmm. and the writer will turn in their script and the artist will have I don't know, a death in the family or something where they're like, I'm sorry, I can't work, work on this book for a year because I have to do X, Y, Z. Right. And the publisher will be like, so what do we do now? <laughs> like this person's basically saying, I can't work on this book indefinitely. Do we cancel the whole contract despite the writer having turned in all of their work and us being happy with it, and the artist saying, like, I'm sorry, I don't even know. Like, it's going to be at least 12 months and it might be an extended period of time where before I can get to this. Yeah, no, there are all sorts
2: of reasons why I like, I like separate contracts for separate people, right? Because you can make a promise as a person. It's hard to make a promise as, like, half a team. In independent comics agreements, uh, you will see it more often that, creators sign separate agreements. Um, I think in part for that reason. Like, independent comics publishers are more familiar with the one or the other um, can't finish the project but you want to replace them with their approval Um, and the easiest way of doing that is if it's just one contract where you say, okay, we're terminating this. You can always amend a contract, right? You can amend the contract to say we're replacing this party with this other party. It's just that that potentially creates problems because if I'm representing the person, the replacement party, the person who's coming in, I'm going to look at that agreement that's already been signed and say, well, like, I'm glad you all thought this was fine, but for my client, they can't agree to these things. So I also want to change those, which is then a negotiation with the publisher and potentially the other creator. Um, One of the things that people should know about contracts is we can always change them if people agree. And there are lots of different ways of changing them and improving on them. But um, it's not always the easiest or fastest process because there's so many interested parties involved. So
1: speaking to that, how how quickly should people expect a contract or a contract (laughs) draft after they get their deal memo? Oh, goodness. Like, like, when is the time when they're like, I think that this is a problem? And then...
0: This is where I want to say that my first book contract took over
2: a year. Yeah. Yeah. So it it always depends. Um, Sometimes people get them out really quickly. Other times they don't. And there are lots of different reasons for that. It will take longer than you want it to take, and it will take longer than you expect it to take. And I always talk to people about it the same way, like, uh, folks who don't do comics often expect that comics should be really easy to do. Like, you're just drawing a thing. Um... It's just it's just three panels. Why does it take so long? They don't understand how the comic is made or written, right? And they don't understand the time that goes into it. And in the same way, like, a contract is not just printing off a document or um, writing something really quickly. I have people who ask me all the time, like, don't you just have a contract I could use? Um, and I do have a template that I work off of when I'm drafting, but I'm... I'm not just plugging in information. I'm crafting it so that it all works together as one thing. But to get the contract from the publisher can take some time, but then negotiating it is going to take time as well. So don't be worried if it's taking a little bit of time. At the same time, there is nothing wrong with sending an email and checking in on a regular basis. Uh, Because sometimes people get overwhelmed and sometimes things get lost in the shuffle and it's helpful to be reminded like, all right, I said I was going to get that out to you. Let me check with this department who had it last, and I can give you an idea of when it's due. It's still going to get done.
1: And it will take it will take time also between the point when you get the first draft of the contract and the point where you get one that you're happy to sign off on.
2: Yeah, that's because, again, we've got this elaborate game of telephone, right? And um, it's not always apparent from the outside how many parties internal to the publisher are participating in that in that game of telephone. So that super leads into this next question that
0: we had, which is, if you're an author, and you're really ready to get working on your book, and your contract is taking six months to a year to negotiate, is it okay for you to start working in your book? Or should you wait for your contract to be signed like you won't get paid until your contract gets signed like how do you advise people when they're
2: making these decisions and does it depend on the
0: kind of book and the publisher and whatnot
2: so, so one of the things i always tell people is okay uh, so the contract taking a long time does not necessarily mean you're going to be held to the same timeline right like i'm not gonna let them sign the contract saying that you were going to turn in the book three months ago we can we can change that that's that's easy to change um so that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. The other is you're taking a real risk in starting work on it if something doesn't work out with this contract, right? Because you're only going to be paid for it if the contract is signed. I, it's one, it's one of those reasons I don't like that term in the contract that says this will be your next published book. Because you might take on a totally different job in the interim for complete it because it's relatively quick or whatever and uh, get that done while you're waiting for the, the the contract to finalize. I would say that whether or not you start is going to depend on who your editor is and uh, the conversations that you have with them um, and the conversations that you're having with your agent or attorney about how the contract negotiations are progressing. Um, It's going to be a risk to start work For some people, that risk is worthwhile. For others, it's not. Um, I wouldn't do it, but I'm particularly risk averse. I try not to prescribe (laughs) my risk aversion on others. What is your perspective on that one? I mean, I think that super depends. Like, I would never do a work-for-hire project.
1: Well,
0: here's the thing. I wrote and turned in an entire work-for-hire comic script before, like, I think well before the contract was in because it was a movie tie-in and it had to be done really, really fast Mm. in order for it to be published with the movie. Mm -hmm. But it was working with like it was a Delray, like it was a very reputable publisher. We had a very hard-ass agent who was representing us. These are people that we knew. It was a project we'd done work with before, and it was a big enough movie that we knew they weren't going to like flake out on it. So we all felt like, okay, we, we they're definitely going to pay us. They're not going to, you know, if nothing else, this publisher isn't going to want to ruin their relationship with this agent by flaking out on this. So, And this is the timeline, so we're going to do it. But, you know, if I were working for some guy who wanted me to draw his book for work for hire and was going to be paying me out of pocket, there's no (laughs) way in a million years I would ever start drawing it without a contract. And then, you know, like if it's an original book, like if I'm working with a publisher like First Second or HarperCollins or, you know, any number of other places, and it's like, well, this is my original book that I pitched to them and I'm going to want to do this book. And if things fall through with this publisher which I don't think is going to happen, I'm still going to want to draw this book. So, you know, let's get started here. I want to get started. But on the other hand, like, there is the risk that... If I am remotely uncertain that it's going to go through that it will fall through, and you know the new editor that I sell this book to is like, "Yeah, I really like this, but can you make the main character like a foot taller? <laughs> <laughs> I really think the main character needs to be like a big beef, yeah, and therefore you need to redraw these fifty pages that you've already drawn, yeah, otherwise, I'm sorry we don't want your book, yeah, so like but I feel like that that's not very common no
2: it um, I, it but it does happen, right, like it does, yeah, I had a client recently who was um Asked if she could make some characters older, and I was like, N- "No, no, <laughs> they're 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 drawn." <laughs> um, but uh, it is a situation where it it can be so helpful to have a representative because that person will have had experience with certain publishers again and again, and particularly agents who are representing a lot of different creators and so are constantly interacting with different publishers and different editors. They have a lot of relationship relationships within the industry and what you're one of the many things you're benefiting from when you're working with an agent is that relationship that they have um and the fact that a publisher or an editor isn't going to want to harm that relationship in your instance right they're going to work hard for that agent um because they want to they want to maintain a good relationship there. With lawyers, um, like, I I think I have good relationships with a lot of different publishers, but I'm not as essential to them, because I'm not bringing them new work. I'm not thinking, you know, that's just not my role as an attorney, is to connect a creator with a publisher. So that's not to say that, uh, like, my reputation is valuable, too. But That's one of the reasons why I think an agent can be particularly helpful for creators is that they have a lot of relationships. They've worked with people on a regular basis. And it's not just about this particular interaction. It is about the relationship that the editor or the publisher has with that agent
1: overall. And I think there's another thing that an agent or a lawyer relationship can bring specifically to the contract negotiations, Mm -hmm. where if an agent is like, I am this agent from this specific agency, the publisher may be like, oh yes, we've done 10 book deals with you before. Right. You always ask for this clause to be inserted and this clause to be inserted and this clause to be inserted. Yeah. So we actually have a version of our contract that is the version of the contract designed for your agency with all of the things that you caveat mm-hmm in it it's like an agency specific boilerplate basically yeah. yeah so if a publisher is like we're working with this agency for the first time that's one thing that could be like we have to add three months onto our contract process <laughs> because we didn't know all the things that you were going to ask for and now we have to rewrite our contract to accommodate Yeah. Them. and that is in fact why my first contract took so long because my
0: agent had not worked with that particular subsection of uh, my publisher before yeah here's the thing though so like you got into a little bit of this a second ago so like This is massively oversimplifying things, but I, I, as a cartoonist who has a book and I have a contract that I need to negotiate for that book, I have three broad categories of options. I can either do it by myself, Mm -hmm. I can hire a lawyer, or I can try to find an agent. Mm -hmm. So do you have thoughts on how somebody should be kind of making the decision about which of those three options makes the most sense for them?
2: Yes, of course. (laughs) If you've got the contract, you've, you've made the pitch, you've secured an offer, um, that's where working with an agent versus working with an attorney kind of is – it's similar. It's not the same, but um, it's similar because at that point in time it, – the. It, a lot of what an agent does is is the representation, right? Is getting somebody to make the offer. It's finding, it's connecting the project with the right editor, with the right publisher. It is it is that very important matchmaking and um, establishing the, the the outline of the deal. Once you get to a contract, a lawyer is going to be helpful because while there are some agents that have a legal background and some agents that have been working for such a long time that they uh, they can negotiate a contract uh, as well as an as a attorney can, as an attorney, I'm looking at different things than an agent is. I am looking at the legal ramifications of this contract as opposed to just the deal. And how the deal is structured. I'm looking at how the deal is structured too, but that's because I like looking at deal structure and making sure that it is properly structured for my client. But I am also looking at the legal responsibilities there. It used to be that agents would represent you um, for all of your your work. Um, like if if you're a writer, it was they would represent you for any book um, that you were going to write, or they would represent you for all fiction books or what whatever. I have now seen more agents who will take on a creator for representing them for a specific book, which means there's no guarantee that that agent will represent you for other books later on. But if you've got an offer in hand, it is easier to get an agent at that point in time than it would be prior to that. Um, they might be a little bit fussed about the if you're contacting them after you've agreed to the offer letter. But it's easier to get an agent at that point in time because they know there's an offer on the table and then they can help make sure that the contract is going to be a good fit. But the risk there is that out of desperation to get somebody to help you with this contract, you're going to agree to a long-term relationship with somebody that isn't the best fit for you. Um, Somebody who is available and able to help you in this instance, but maybe isn't the best long-term fit for you obviously if this is an agent who has been on your list of like who dream agents for a long time and they say, yes, that's a totally different situation. But I, I hate to see people who have made representation decisions that will last beyond this particular book because they felt under the gun, uh, in needing somebody to help them with a contract. Um, I think if what you really want to want is to understand the contract and to make sure that it fits what you need, a lawyer is, a, is the right fit. If you want to make sure that this deal um, fits with your long term career goals and that it allows you to, um, and that you have somebody who will help connect you with opportunities for those long term career goals, an agent is a better fit. Um, I work, by the way, I will work with somebody who is represented by an agent fairly frequently and when I do that my job is very distinct from the agent's job we are collaborating for the benefit of our shared client but we are we are doing different things so I'm feeling here an undercurrent of please get
1: somebody oh my god please 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 oh my god (laughs) please Please. Okay, so is it expensive to get someone to help you with your contract? If someone's listening to this episode and they're like, okay, I'm convinced I should hire a lawyer to help look over stuff, is it is it going to be a lot of money?
2: Um, it's going to be money, um, but it, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily... So not something people will do for free. No. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's one of the reasons why sometimes working with an agent can be helpful because the agent's going to take, you know, a percentage of what you make. So it's not going to come directly out of your pocket. It's going to come out of what um, you're being paid. When I work with clients, I talk to them about budget upfront and we try to pick a budget that makes sense for them. Attorneys do Traditionally, we charge by the hour, right? But um, I also do flat fees for people. I do structures where I say we're not going to exceed a certain amount. Um, so I think it's going to cost this much money. But uh, if it if we end up less than that, you don't have to pay more. But um, we're not going to go over that amount. It's going to be at least uh, a couple hundred dollars. But I think that that is a really good investment because... You're just this contract is going to dictate, you know, probably the next two years of your life. So it, I feel like it's it's worth the investment. And if you're worried because you don't have the money right now, um, that's OK. Talk to the lawyer and say, like, can we structure my payment to you so that I'm paying you after I've received my advance? Of course. The other thing I would say is that when you're going to make that investment, that's another reason why it's important to work with somebody who has experience in the publishing industry. And it's even better if you can work with somebody who has experience with comics, because then you're – even if you're paying a little bit more on an hourly rate, um, you're – Getting the benefit of that expertise, and it's not going to take quite as long potentially for the contract to get done. I there's an attorney that I really respect. He's somebody I have turned to for um, advice on trademark issues many, many times. He actually taught me trademark, and I ran into him a couple of years ago, and he said that he was helping a client by looking at their publishing contract, and he was like, and they're just all these weird, awful terms, and uh, just like one of the things that he was really stuck on was. That if there was a film made based on the comic, um, the author could give the the studio the ability to use up to 10% of the book as a way of promoting it. And he was like, he was getting caught up in that math and how that would work and what the practicalities of it were. And so he was like, Katie, this seems awful. And I was like, don't, don't worry about it. It's It's fine. It's okay. And he was like, really? Because I just... and I was like, yeah, it's just a weird thing. Just you're fine. Don't honestly, don't don't focus your attention there.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned before the whole the situation where major publishers often have a clause in their contract that prohibits selling at shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, having someone who specifically knows about comics and how important conventions are to the industry might just you know strike that clause out of the contract. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a couple different lawyers, uh,
2: who do this kind of work. They're good people. I would say if you're thinking of, you know, publishing and, and getting into that realm and you're at a convention, look to see if anybody is giving a talk about contracts or negotiating or copyright and go to the panel and take a card because a lot of lawyers, um, who work in comics go to conventions, and we'll speak at conventions because it's an easy way for us to get a, a message out to folks and say, "Hey, look, here's how you do that thing." So that's a that's a yes. good way of finding an attorney.
1: Okay, so one last question for you: um, We were emailing before, and we sent questions ahead of time, and you told us that the questions that we were talking about weren't things that people typically ask you mm-hmm. so i'm very curious about what other things people are curious or anxious about that aren't these things uh, are, are there like more things that we kind of like left out of these this conversation that you're like this is the gaping hole in this discussion
2: no 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 what i'm excited about is you guys were asking the the like the chewier questions, the questions that I wish more people asked about. Because oftentimes people get distracted by the stuff that I think isn't going to have as big of an impact or isn't going to be as big of an issue, right? Like a lot of people get tied up in the amount of the advance without understanding the math behind the advance as we were talking about earlier. Or people get anxious about the cover design and having control over that as opposed to (laughs) <laughs> you know the schedule for turning the book in and that's not to say that you know you shouldn't worry about those things you should worry about whatever makes sense to you but where you can have an impact and where you can really make changes are in um the parts of the contract that we've been talking about and the, the parts of the deal that we've been talking about not necessarily the the sparkly bits that are readily apparent that was what i meant is that i think the these questions are the meatier, chewier, helpful questions, as opposed to "Is work for hire always awful?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well, that's very kind of you to say, and um, thank you for joining us. Uh, can you tell people who are listening where they can find you online? Yes, um, uh, my blog is Work Made for Hire F O
2: R dot net. Uh, Because .NET is where all the cool kids hang out these days. (laughs) And then um, I'm on Twitter pretty frequently. I like it there, except when I don't. Um, And I'm at... That's (laughs) relatable. (laughs) I am at underscore Katie, K-A-T-I-E, underscore Lane, L-A-N-E. And it's a good bit of like negotiation advice, contracts, cats, Star Trek. So if you like any of those things, come join me. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. If you'd like to learn even more about how contracts
0: are put together and kind of have them be demystified further, Katie actually has a five-email course that you can sign up for. Uh, you can find it at bit.ly/understandcontracts. That's bit.ly/understandcontracts. I've actually signed up for myself. It's really interesting, and I
1: highly recommend it. Thanks for listening to Graphic Novel TK. Next time, join us for a conversation about rights. What are these things that are in this contract, and how do they work?
0: We'll be talking with Miriam Miller, who's the Senior Subsidiary Rights Manager at Holiday House Publishing. We get pretty deep into it. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. <music> Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Alison Wilgus, and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes, along with other comics news and podcasts, at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at TK or email us at graphicnoveltk at gmail.com.